Welcome to the International Door Association's DoorCast. The IDA DoorCast will provide news and notes from the building and remodeling industry and tips and tidbits to help you improve your business. Now, here's your DoorCast host, IDA Executive Director, Mike Fisher. Welcome, everybody. This is Mike Fisher talking to you from the Winding Bar Cafe. My guest today on the IDA DoorCast is Matt Weber, who's going to talk to us about cross-generational selling. This new abnormal that we are in isn't just about COVID-19. It's also about understanding customer needs across the different generations. Matt's going to give us some tips for dealing with younger buyers to help you improve your closing ratio. So, Matt, thanks for joining us. Absolutely, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Alpha Overhead Dorf in Billings, Montana. He's a member of IDA and part of our Young Professionals Network, also known as the IDA, YPN. Alpha Overhead Door is an IDEA accredited dealer. Matt, you have two Master Tech certified techs, don't you? Yeah, that's correct. I've got one that's just got to finish up paperwork basically on uh, on fire door drop desk. Oh, that's another topic we're going to be talking about in a future podcast. Before we get into that, as well as the rest of our discussion today, why don't you give us a little history on Alpha Overhead Door and how you got into the door business? Yeah, absolutely, Mike. Alpha Overhead Door been around for 15 years. I've only been really the CEO of it, you know, kind of the executive officer, operating partner, if you want to say that as well, for about uh, six to eight years now. But it came out of a construction supply company. My dad had a construction supply company out of Columbus, Montana, called Valley Construction Supply. Uh, We built our own pole barns, like many construction supply companies up in our area, rural rural area. Instead of subbing out the doors, my dad would buy them and and install them uh, in our own buildings. And so once the building market took a crash in the mid-90s, he stuck with garage doors. And it was kind of an easy transition since he knew how to do it and went from there as RW Enterprises and then incorporated into Alpha Overhead Door in in, uh, 2006. So that's kind of how I got into it. Second generation, been installing doors since I was about 10 years old. So that sounds like a pretty good background, even for a 10 year old. So you do commercial and residential work in your area? Yeah, commercial, residential, industrial service, installation, you name it, we do it. Excellent. Well, thanks again for that information. We're going to talk again about cross-generational selling. And I think what's important for our dealer members to understand is that you really have to learn new tricks. So we're going to start out by going back in time a little bit and talk about how the buyer is really part of the selling process. So we may talk about some older sales techniques and how some of the fundamentals that are part of those techniques are still valid, but how you really need a different approach today to directly reach today's consumers. As we begin our discussion, Matt, why don't you start by giving us your perspective on what that history of the buyer part of that process is, or what, what really does the buyer want today? Yeah, so one thing we've got around here that my general manager kind of undertook uh, when he first came on here about three years ago was the history of the buyer, the history of consumer choice. And we went back a hundred years. So, you know, we look at from the 1920s to the 1950s, everybody wanted a high quality product. It didn't matter how it was built, where it was built, as long as it was high quality, it was marketed as reliable and durable. People didn't really care where it came from. The quality of the product was the primary concern. Then from the 1950s to the 1970s, 
you had the customer service experience. And this is where you see the shift in the consumer choice is kind of the all-inclusive. And this is where shopping malls came from. You know, kind of the, the first well-known mall was that 550,000 square foot Broadway Crenshaw building in, in Los Angeles in 1947 where people could come in and you could go shopping for clothes, you could go shopping for kitchen items, uh, as well as stop at a food court, sit in a food court and eat lunch while you're there. So it's kind of that customer service experience type thing. And then you get into the 1970s to 1990s, you got the popular choice. Brands have always used uh, celebrities or well-known names or locations to brand. Babe Ruth had an underwear line in the 1920s. One of the most pivotal ones that, that I can think of that we talk about around here is Pele. In the 1970 World Cup, Puma paid Pele to kneel down, call a timeout, kneel down and tie his Puma shoes. They paid him 120 grand to kneel down and, pay, uh, and tie his shoes. So and then, so that began to get people in excited for Puma because everybody wanted what Pele was was wearing. So, from there, you got the 1990s to the to the 2010s. You got the support. You know, you're supporting a cause. You know, people started to look at okay, with my purchase, what am I funding? Are, are people, you know, are, are am I helping people with this purchase? And so you've seen companies begin to market that, you know, with the Lance Armstrong Foundation. U.S. corporate spending on cause-related marketing jumped from $125 million in 1990 to roughly $828 million in 2002. That is an incredible, incredible jump. And so you see that in, in cause-related marketing from the 1990s to the, to the 2010s. And then from the, with the onset of social media, and technology that we have nowadays, you see kind of a, a relevancy factor. You see people wanting to engage with companies at a, at a level that they can reach out and touch them. And really you can with today's devices and phones and everything that's out there, you can reach out and touch really anybody you want to. I think, what is that called? Six, six degrees of separation or something like that. But you see, you know, they want to have a good time with the company. They want to know that the employees are enjoying their job. Customer wants a salesperson slash worker to have fun with them and be around and enjoy selling to them. And so you kind of see that shift into that. So that's kind of just a real quick brief overview of kind of a 100 years of consumer choice and, and what it looks like with marketing. So that's kind of where we start off here in that conversation, Mike. Thanks, Matt. So uh, when I first started in my sales career, I studied the IBM PSS, the personal selling skills curriculum. And in that curriculum, they used a fundamental concept called need satisfaction selling, meaning the customer has a need and you're going to solve that need with what you have. Whether it actually solves those needs or not, your job is to convince the prospective customer that what you have the features and benefits of your product or service will, in fact, satisfy the needs the customers had. And it really came down to what I've described as an adversarial process where you're literally trying to wear the customer out. If you're selling a car, it was, well, what color would you like this car in? And what do we have to do to get you in it today? And then little by little, you wear out the customer. And so that adversarial relationship has really evolved now to something that's more, I think, collaborative. Is, is that the right word? 
I think that's definitely best way to put it. Yeah, that adversarial. I know when I took some some sales trainings back in the day, it was overcoming objections. If I can get it in this color, is the answer yes. Or if I can get you this month from rebates, or if I can get you lifetime oil changes, if we're talking about a car, you know? And so, yeah, I think that's a very good point. We've talked to our staff around here about our customer experience and how we want that to look. And, and there's three ways that you can interact with your customer. There's three ways that your customers would deal with your organization. First of all, which is probably the worst one, is your customer feels that you did something to them. That goes back to your adversarial overcoming objections. So they feel like you push them into this buyer or you push this sale or you push something that they didn't need and now they feel gross about it. You're never going to have that person come back to you as a customer if you've done something to your customer. The second one, which is pro- which is appropriate and it work and where a lot of people's mindset are in the, uh, in the sales industry is doing something for them. So that's the solutions based. Hey, you've got a problem. I've got a solution. I'm going to do something for you. So you come in, you know, you write in as the hero, you, uh, you know, you, you take care of their problem. You may get them back depending on how everything else in the customer service experience went. And the third and final one, which is probably the best, which will probably give you a customer for life and they will tell everybody that they know to use your services is doing something with them. Does a customer feel like you have done something with them? Have you collaborated in this process together to fulfill a need for them, to fulfill the problem? Whether it's garage doors or really any other buying experience, if the customer feels that you have done something with them and they feel a part of the process and they feel really engaged, I guarantee you will have a customer for life and they will tell everybody else that is looking for garage doors, cars, haircuts, whatever whatever it may be to use your products and services. Thanks, Matt. So that adversarial relationship does sometimes set you up for failure. One of the other tenets of that selling process was always to create a sense of urgency. In fact, you've seen that on late night television. I remember Vince from ShamWow saying, you know, you've got to order this in the next hour or because I can't do it all day, right? That whole idea of creating a sense of urgency. And by the way, I use that in coaching baseball, coaching base runners, create a sense of urgency when you're on the base so that you really put the pressure on the defense. So it's not just about selling. Unfortunately, that paradigm does create this thing that we've heard of called buyer's remorse. And in fact, there are some state laws that have really created an opportunity where if you're doing an in-home sale, which is typical for home improvements, if you're doing in-home sales, then the individual signs a contract, you typically will have a few days where they can opt out. So you make the sale, but you don't actually do anything with it for a few days to make sure you get through that cooling off period. How is that affecting you today? Is that still part of your operations at Alpha Overhead Door in Montana? Well, you know, most of the time we order everything in. Our closest DC is 250 miles away. So everything comes in ordered for the most part. And so there's a a minimum of two weeks that they're waiting to go through. So as far as the buyer's remorse thing, we don't typically have an issue with that in our company, or maybe even in this industry, it'd be hard to have that type of, uh, well, I mean, we all know about the the bad bobs and the, and the stories of all those out there. So there's that, there's that side of it, but yeah, we don't really encounter that too much here because there's a minimum of two weeks before their doors are in and installed. 
Well, let me have a follow-up question on that, Matt. Could the reason that you're not seeing issues with buyer's remorse be that you're not using a confrontational adversarial selling technique, but you are using this collaborative process so that both parties have an equal stake in the outcome? Oh, absolutely. For sure. You know, we, we do our own designing with the, with the customer and, you know, what their house looks like, the door that would go best with it, our recommendations with it. You know, the customer is always right in what they want. So you can always throw out suggestions, but if they don't take them, you know, and we've actually had a customer come back and say, I don't like the option that I picked. You guys suggested something else. Is there something we could do? And we work with them on it. That's not one of those things that, you know, we're saying tough luck, you're, you're out of luck. We try to engage the customer. If we can't do something with them, we're at least going to help them with their, with their problem, provide a solution. So there is a lot of history in selling that we can learn from. Again, taking the fundamentals of making sure that you are, in fact, satisfying the customer's needs, but not doing so in that adversarial relationship. So you talked a little bit about that history of that selling process and how things have started to change to today's buyer with the buying for a cause or the social consciousness that's part of the decision tree that we see. What about looking to the future? If we kind of take a look, what's coming down the pipeline? What do you think is going to happen with future buyers? I think that's where you have to watch the kids. What are the kids of today doing? Kids' interests and communication skills have always, for the most part, been a driver in future marketing and and how to sell. What are they interested in now? Because behaviors don't really change much as you grow up in the way you make decisions, uh, that is. You know, obviously... My behavior has changed a whole lot from when I was 13 to, to now, but as far as the decision-making process, that's something that's going to re- remain relatively unchanged. And so I think you got to look at the social media aspect of the future because, you know, without looking in that direction, because everything's headed that way, everything is on social media. I'm not selling a garage door on social media, but I'm selling my brand. I'm selling who I am, who my company is, what we do. And so that is something you've got to keep abreast with. You know, kids want to have fun. Look at TikTok. I mean, TikTok right now is blowing up. It is absolutely insane what's going on there. And it's fun content. It's funny content. And I'll tell you what, if you get on there, you can go down a rabbit hole with some really funny, you know, some really funny stuff. And so But that's where things are these days. Technology has changed so much and changed us so much that it's pretty incredible. The 70 to 80 year olds right now, they ignore social media for the most part. They know it's there. Some use it, but most of them don't care. The 50 to 60 year olds are tolerating it. You know, they're on. They probably use it more than they they admit. They tend to focus on politics and family, you know, and so they're checking in with friends and family and and, uh, checking in every once in a while. The 40, 50-year-olds are are using it. They're using social media. They're similar to the 50 to 60, but without kind of that negative bias towards it. 30 to 40-year-olds utilize. So it's a tool for this group. They're the ones that are doing, that's kind of their research center and some of their, their shopping outlets, so to speak. 20 to 30 year olds are needing it. You know, they're needing the social media. It's kind of like a drug, that age group. They check in frequently wherever they're at and they often leave it open to receive notifications and alerts, you know, just to see what's happening. 
And then the, the younger generation coming in, and I forget all, you know, Gen Z's, millennials, all this, I forget what age groups or what, but the 10 to 20 year olds, they live on it and they need it. It's like a, it's like a, an exoskeleton, so to speak. Removing it would be like taking away food or water or oxygen. I mean, they live on this and they rarely use the internet. Like they're not going on Google much anymore. They are all on social media. They're asking people on social media. I think that's where you got to go because technology, again, technology and social media for this younger generation coming in is really very, very important. A phrase that I've heard you use, Matt, is digital natives. So there is a population shift. There's a generation break for those who were born and became aware of the digital environment, as opposed to others like me and you who experienced a transition to the digital world. How does that affect the buying experience? Do you think that that's a hard line for the most part? I mean, I still remember dialogue. I remember sneaking into my parents' living room to get on the internet and check my email account that I wasn't supposed to have, you know, like, so I remember that dial up process and throwing a blanket over it so that nobody would hear that, you know, all that stuff. And so, yeah, that transition is, is pretty incredible. And so, yeah, these 10 year olds, they don't know a life without a smartphone. They don't know any different from that. And so, I don't know what that buying experience is going to look like for them when they get old enough to start making purchases. I know it's going to be really hard for brick and mortar places. You know, there's a lot of stuff going online. You know, you got Amazon, the older generations. I mean, I remember the Sears and Middle Bell, even being able to order a house out of a catalog. You know, it might take five, six months for you to get something that you ordered off of the catalogs, you know, in the 60s and 70s. But now you're getting stuff from Amazon in like two days. So, Matt, that's a good point. You brought up Sears and Roebuck. And, and remember that 120 years ago or 100 years ago, there was a whole industry based around catalog sales. And as you said, it does take longer to get delivery to Billings, Montana, when things were coming out of somewhere in, say, Illinois. But the fact is, it's the same fundamental concept today with the shift from suburban malls to Amazon and other online fulfillment houses. So what we've actually done is we've actually returned to our roots where there is no brick and mortar. It's all about how you get the information. Instead of a paper catalog, it's available online, it's available on websites, it's available through social media. The information is there. It's only really the delivery method that's changed. Yeah. What does that shift mean as we look forward for the door industry now? What does that mean for the future of showrooms? What does that mean for the future of distribution centers? What does that mean for the future of the independent door dealer who doesn't adapt to this new world? Man, I think ultimately, if you're not using all avenues of of marketing, then it's going to be really tough to hang on and adapt to the new world, whatever that looks like coming out, you know, within the next three to four years. I mean, we could, everybody sees it. The industry's in upheaval. It's not just our industry. It's, you know, the construction industry, the metal industry, the automotive industry. I mean, it, it's everywhere. And so I think in order to be, and to remain relevant, you have to focus on your brand because again, garage door companies don't sell widgets. I'm a, I'm a door dealer. I don't sell a widget. You know, I might be able to throw a special for an operator online, but historically that doesn't 
done very well in our market. I mean, I, I live in the largest city in Montana, but it's still only 140, 145,000 people. So it's not, it's not a very big market. But when I look at people interacting with my company on social media platforms, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, whatever, people are engaging and wanting to be involved with my brand. And so it goes, and and it goes across all avenues. My trucks are wrapped. You know, anybody that follows me or my company or the, you know, the different groups that I'm in on Facebook, you've seen my trucks and they are, they are driving billboards. I also advertise through billboards. You know, I don't do a whole lot of TV or radio, but in some markets that is probably a good form of marketing and advertising. But where I really am trying to focus now is what does my brand look like online? What does, what can I put on social media? Again, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, all of these platforms to then drive people to want to know who Alpha Overhead Door is, what we do, what we stand for, and what we can provide them within the community. There's a saying the more things change, the more they stay the same. We've already talked about this shift from catalog to online, but there are some other things. You're talking about social media. At the end of the day, testimonials have always been a part of making sure that you overcome that objection or you you somehow pre-qualify your company to do business. How do testimonials as part of that social media interfacing affect you? How do testimonials benefit your company? Testimonials, Google reviews, Facebook reviews, Yelp reviews, BBB reviews, all of those, I mean, they definitely help sell. If you're doing and you're in that SEO game, uh, search engine optimization, I got it out there. If you're in that game and you're drawing people to your content on your website, through Google, also using your social media account, your reviews should, and obviously as long as you're a good company and, and hold, hold true to some, some certain standards and norms, then you ask people for reviews. I mean, if somebody is extremely happy with you and tell you how much they loved what you were doing and, you know, and, and how you helped them out in, a, in an emergency or something like that, ask them for it because those make sense. Google reviews make sales. We kind of did things organically for a while and just expecting people, if they liked our services, to give us reviews. Well, at that point in time, we probably had, you know, 50 to 60 reviews over a four-year period. We now have almost 200 reviews, which is like 150 more than the next one. And we're at a 4.9, but it's very important. People call us up all the time and say, hey, we love, we love the reviews that we saw of you online, and that's why we, we're talking to you. Yeah, you might be a little bit higher in price, or you might be a little bit further out than what I'm like. I believe you're the company that I want to use. So those are very important. And that also is part of your brand. That's how you build your brand. When you get people that are willing to leave testimonials and, and good, good reviews for you, that's all part of your brand building. I was looking through some research for my genealogy. And I actually found cases where one of my relatives had agreed to allow their name to be used in a newspaper ad for a specific stove for their kitchen. The advertiser listed people that had purchased this stove in the city so that anyone reading the magazine would be likely to know someone who had purchased that stove. That's kind of a 
reverse testimonial where you're actually driving that through the market. My understanding is that the company that sold the stove would give them a discount, maybe a couple of dollars off the price of the stove if they would allow them to use their name in the advertising. Have you done anything like that using Facebook? For example, if you came to my house and replaced my garage door, where you would actually post a picture of my new door and mention me by name saying, Mike Fisher got his new door today and he's really happy with it and have a photo of me standing there in front of my door. I know I've seen that in the car business. Is that something you've tried at Alpha Overhead Door? Yeah, so we have done that a few times. We don't necessarily offer discounts for that, but if we got a happy customer that's willing to pose with us, you know, our technician at the end of a job, that's awesome. And we, you know, we thank them for it and love it. We do, however, do yard signs. We offer 3% on a yard sign. If they leave a yard sign in their yard for a month after the install, then we offer, you know, we give them 3% on that. Another thing that we do is we send postcards to their neighbors. Hey, check out your neighbor's new garage door. Here's five, 10% off or whatever. Trying to get that action moving in regards to, to selling to selling doors and getting your name out there. Those are some little things that we use to try to get people to, again, that branding, getting your name out there. And, you know, even though they may not need a garage door, they might save that postcard for when they do or a service or something like that. But they've seen that name. If you can get your name into their house, whether it's a magnet or a postcard or something like that, and it's recognizable, it has to be recognizable. I mean, our colors, you know, my folks back in the day, my mom back in the day, when she started picking colors for our company, did an amazing job by picking something that was incredibly recognizable in that purple and lime green. And so people recognize it, they know it. And that's basically the goal. You know, it's just get in their head, get your brand in their head. And then when your service is needed, hopefully they remember that name. This is good stuff, man. And I keep reminding myself, the more things change, the more they stay the same. There was a day where direct mail coupons was a very important part of marketing for home improvement companies, including garage door dealers. And the concept there was you needed to send the coupons out in a regular basis. So that perhaps the first time it hit the mail, the customer wouldn't even open it. They would throw it away. The second time they might look at it, then they would throw it away. The third time they might put it in a drawer. Later, they would clean the drawer and throw it away. And then maybe the fourth time they would save it because by that time, something had changed. And they said, you know, I might need new siding. I might need a new roof. I might need a new garage door. So the whole idea was to build the brand recognition through a repetitive action. Now we can do that in a much more compressed manner because of the digital media. So we don't have to wait for that elapsed time to happen. You can get your brand established in a much quicker way. Is that how you see it playing out? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think what's the standard 12 to 13 impressions before somebody kind of really recognizes who you are. Yeah, absolutely. That's a whole lot easier to do on the digital platform nowadays. Most companies are lucky to post two to three times a day. The big players in the game, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, I mean, they're posting up to 40 times, 50 times a day on different social media platforms. Not each platform, but 40 to 50 times a day throughout their platform. So the big players are using it. 
and it's working for them. You know, obviously they've got a larger market than most people, than most of your, your garage door dealers. But the fact of the matter is, if you're not staying in front of these people, people will remember somebody's name. Somebody's going to come in and do it better than you if you don't stay on top of it. Uh, and I think that's the important part to remember is get with the times. Because if you're not with the times, especially, I mean, we have no idea what's going on in the world or the industry for over the course of the next two to three years. It's all a guessing game as to what's what's happening right now. And so if you're not staying relevant, you're not going to make it. Thanks, Matt. There's another saying, of course, that if you're not moving ahead, you're going backwards. There's no such thing as treading water and staying in place, at least not for long in this world. So if we kind of go back and look at the cross-generational selling, which is the foundation of what we've been talking about, taking these concepts and converting them to how to talk to different generations. Remember, we, we have pre-boomers, we have boomers, we have the Gen Xers, and then we get into the digital natives, and then we have those future buyers that we, we're still trying to figure out. But we do know one thing, they're going to be well-connected socially and digitally. When you actually think about those different generations in the selling process, is that something that you want to do almost organically so you immediately recognize just how you interact with a potential customer? You get a feel for that, and then you adapt your selling style to that conversation based on their perspective and their history. How does that play out for you? I think it plays out in a wide variety uh, because, I mean, we're still selling to the boomers. We're still selling to the Gen Xers. We're still selling to, I'm, I guess, what they considered geriatric millennial. I'm on the, the upper scale of the millennial age range, I guess. You know, everybody, you're still selling to those people, but with the onset of technology and social media, those people want interaction. I want interaction. I want to be able to talk to somebody, possibly see them face to face, interact with them, shake their hand, and feel good about my purchase. The digital natives, you might only communicate with them through text message, email, and Snapchat. Yeah, I mean, it's, you're, it's going to play out in a wide variety of things because, again, those 10 to 20-year-olds that they have to have this, it's like an oxygen, it's a, it's a uh, psychological exoskeleton for them. They're not necessarily as comfortable talking to somebody face-to-face. It's a sad reality, but that is the reality. And so you might not ever see this person or talk to them because they don't necessarily feel comfortable in a live personal interaction. As we think about those different generations and we think about, as you said, you may never talk to them. Another way to look at this is the evolution of the telephone. We had a telephone. There was one telephone. It was hung on the wall in your home and everybody had to use it. If you wanted to talk to your girlfriend when you were in high school, you had to sit there and talk to your girlfriend in front of everybody else in your family. Then we went to having extension phones and that set us free or so we thought. After that came cordless phones. You couldn't go too far, but you could go in your own room. You could go out in the back porch and have a private conversation, unless, of course, someone picked up the extension and was listening to you. And then, of course, everything went crazy. We had car phones, mobile phones that were hardwired into a vehicle. You couldn't take it away from the car. It was part of the car. And then we had cellular phones that were handheld units or the bag phones and flip phones and the brick phones that, that we uh, may recall. Ironically, today, I don't have a phone. I have a mobile device 
that, by the way, you can use as a telephone, but that is no longer its primary function, is it? Now it's, I access the internet, I access social media, I text message, and I use all of these other applications. And occasionally I will actually have a voice call with someone else. I think that that evolution in how we communicate with the quote unquote telephone is, is tied directly to the change in the psychology of this selling process and the generations. Are we on track with that? Is that another, another way to analyze how people interact by looking at how they communicate? If they call, versus if they text, versus if they post a Facebook message. Absolutely, I mean, who has a house phone these days? I haven't had a house phone since my parents, since you know, since I was real young and living with my parents. I still remember that phone number, by the way, but who has a house phone anymore? One that's actually physically connected into a wall, whether it's cordless or corded, I would venture to bet less than half the United States population has with the onset of the smart device slash telephone. So yeah, it's been a it's been a crazy 30 years with technology and how far we've come. I mean, you look at flight, you know, there's only 60 years from the time we took our first flight till we had a man on the moon. That's insane. That blows my mind. And it's just it's neat to see, but it also it's also a scary transition. Like where are we going? Are we even going to be able to talk to each other in person, you know, 30 years down the road? Are we always going to be talking through a device? So it's a, it's a weird and strange world we live in, but you have to be on top of it going back to the point of, of our conversation today, Mike, is you have to stay on top of it. You have to be aware of it. You don't necessarily have to like it, but if you want to be successful and you want to survive the next 30 years, then you've got to adapt and overcome. These are all excellent points, Matt. At the end of the day, the more things change, the more they stay the same. It does come down to listening to the customer. Understanding how they want to communicate is just as important as what they want to communicate, because if you don't, you'll need a translator. Absolutely. Which is a lot of the boomers' grandchildren are explaining how their phones work to them. (laughs) Matt, this has been really good, and it's been a really fun discussion, and also, I think, very informative for our listeners. What I would like to do now is kind of focus back and ask you a couple of questions. And the first one is, let's kind of pare this down to the key message, the key process, the key skills that are required to sell through different generations in today's world, and then looking for tomorrow. So the question is, what should dealers do? How should they do it? And what should they sell? And how should they sell it today and tomorrow? So I think you have to, going back to the first part of this conversation, you know, I discussed the 100 years of consumer choice. I think you have to keep all five of those patterns in mind. People still like high quality products. That's the whole point of buying. You want something that's durable. You want something that's reliable, that's got some longevity to it. So you have to keep that in mind. People also want to experience great customer service. I mean, who enjoys going into a car dealership or or a restaurant where you receive terrible customer service? Nobody, you won't be going back there. So people are still very focused on customer service. Then popular choice. Who in today's world is, who can I be associated with? And typically that's, you know, going to be celebrities and stuff like that, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. It's the popular choice. People buy by popular choice and then supporting a cause. People are still very much, you know, make a wish and all these different foundations that companies work for. And I would encourage companies to get behind causes and have that because people still have that moral compass, if you want to say, saying, hey, 
you know, 5% of this purchase is going to go to make a wish, or it's going to go to a local charity or something like that. And then you have to, for, for now, for the people coming out now, the 20 year olds, the 21s, the 23 year olds that are coming out now. And then also for the future into the, into, you know, the digital natives that you, you heard us talk about here, you have to have that relevancy and that fun factor and, and, allow them to be able to engage your company and have fun with that. You know, for us, my goal with all of my social media stuff is we have a very low usage. I think we're one of the only companies in the world that are using this hashtag, but we put a hashtag on most, on pretty much all of our social media content. And I want to be able to have a billboard campaign where it's just a hashtag because people are going to look it up and then they're going to, they can scroll through hours of alpha overhead TikTok or or Instagram or Facebook posts or whatever. And so it's kind of that fun relevancy factor and being able to use that type of marketing and engagement to then hopefully push the younger generation towards your company. Well, we're going to pare it down even more now, Matt. I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you for that one takeaway, that one most important, that one tip that we want all of our dealers to hear from you today. What is the one piece of advice you would give to any door dealer to deal with cross-generational selling today and into the future? Your brand. Your brand is the most important thing that you can sell. Because again, people are not buying garage doors on social media. They are buying your brand, which then sells your garage doors to the consumers that need it. So your brand is the single most important thing that you need to build and promote and advertise and market and protect. You've got to protect your brand too. I've had employees that are not great at protecting my brand. I've had customers that are not great at protecting my brand. I've fired customers because they're not good for my brand. Your brand is the single most important thing to be able to sell today as well as into the future. To paraphrase then, that advice means to understand that you're using your brand to create collaboration, not transactions. You're looking for that relationship with the customer and your brand is the fundamental piece, the fundamental foundation to make that happen. Absolutely. This is great stuff. I wish we had more time. There's a lot more I wanted to go into. Maybe we'll have to have you back in a future season. That'd be fun. I want to thank you very much, Matt. This has been a lot of fun. We've spent a lot of time talking and preparing for this. I hope that our listeners will get a lot out of it, and I think they will. So thanks again for coming on to the IDA DoorCast, and I want to thank our listeners, too. We hope that you'll come back and join us on a future episode. This is Mike Fisher from the Wine Bar Cafe signing off for the IDA DoorCast. Thanks again for coming, and we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to the IDA DoorCast. Be sure to catch our next episode. For more information about IDA, visit doors.org. See you next time.